Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today our lead pastor, Dave Johnson, will bring a message of hope through our series, Moses Faithful Servant. We're excited to share another powerful episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Good morning. All right. That was good. You guys are all getting better at that. I say good morning. You say good morning back. That's perfect. Welcome to our online uh, church attenders this morning as we get into a new study of Moses. Um, I think probably most people have a really good idea who Moses is because of Charlton Heston, right? That, that, you know what? That old movie still holds up. It's still pretty good. <laughs> You know, uh, we have a pretty good cultural idea. Moses is sort of uh, in part of the three world religions. You know, people know who he is. The three great monotheistic religions, I would say, in the world, right, are uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And Moses all has a part to play in each one of those. So worldwide, Moses is known. You could say Moses and people just know. Um. In my old church in Southern California, this is just kind of a fun story, you remember the Syrian war, the Syrian civil war, how brutal it was, how terrible it was. We had a Syrian family who uh, came as refugees to America and landed on our doorstep, and his name was Moses. Yeah. They were a Christian family. Uh, Damascus has one of the longest traditions of, of Christians. Um, in, in church history, you know, that's where Saul became a Christian, one of the longest traditions of the church, unbroken traditions of the church. And he came, and as he learned more English and his son knew English, we talked more and more and more. It became apparent to us, and we found out he has more family back in Syria. So from time to time, he would leave America, and he barely had all the right documentation. I don't know how he did this. He would sneak back into Syria take two or three family members at a time, take them to Lebanon, and then take them into Europe and then bring them back to America. And we were like, wow, you are truly a Moses. Your name holds up, Moses. And he was like 80, doing this every couple years, going back and getting, saving his family from ISIS and from the Civil War. And we'd pray for him, and he would leave, and his wife wouldn't hear from him for weeks and weeks and weeks, and all of a sudden he'd be back. And we were like, Wow, this guy is incredible. But we're doing a character study on Moses because this is what Moses does, right? He takes his people from Egypt where they're in slavery and he brings them into the promised land, but it's not without trouble. And there's no, there, it's not a coincidence that the songs we sang this morning were about praising God in the midst of trouble because that is what Moses has his entire life is he just gets into trouble. So, in order to do a study where, where uh, we look at Moses, one of the things we've got to do is intro work. And I told our prayer team this morning, it's my prayer that the information I have to give today doesn't get in the way of the character of God. Because I believe that in studying the Exodus, particularly, we find the character of God. Now, before in Genesis, we see a little bit of the character of God. We know a little bit of the character of God, but the difference in Exodus is that it begins to be articulated. We get to know the personal name of God. That'll be next week. And then you get to know some of more of his character about God is, is um, patient with us and, and you know, things like that. And, and he's slow to anger, quick to compassion. Like We learn all these character traits of God through the book of Exodus. 
And so in studying what God does through Moses, really it's not about Moses, it's about God. It's about helping us see who God is more clearly. So that's my prayer today as we look into Moses and help us understand, Lord, everything that's going on here. That's my prayer today because there's so much. Literally what I'm about to do right now is give you 480 years of history in about 10 minutes. I know. Somebody put a timer on. No, I'm joking. Um, And the thing is, is you need to know this 480 years of history in order to understand the book better, in order to get it. So I'm just going to dive right in this morning and get into it because there's a lot here. Now, Adam and Eve, this, you know, this is more than 480 years. Adam and Eve sin, you all know the story. Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and they're exiled from the garden, and humanity begins to fall apart. You've got Noah and the flood, God wipes out the earth, all this stuff. You've got this Tower of Babel, you know that story, where, where humanity goes to make its own name great. We've got that story that comes up right after Adam and Eve. And out of that family, God calls a man named Abraham. And he takes Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a new family out of you. And in fact, I'm going to make my name great. Whereas Tower of Babel was all about humans making their name great. And he was like, Abraham, you're going to make my name great, not just in the city of Babel, but throughout the entire world. That's your job, Abraham. And so Abraham goes into this land that God shows him and he's got kids. And what God tells Abraham is your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's got one kid and he's like, how is this even going to happen? That kid has more kids. That kid has more kids. And all of a sudden we get to this one kid named Joseph, who's the youngest of 12 brothers, which would be the 12 tribes of Israel. See how fast I skipped through that history? I could do that. That is years of history, okay, and tons of good stories that I'm just skipping right over. Read your Bibles. It's all in there. Joseph gets sold as a slave to Egypt because he tells his brothers that he's going to be like a ruler over them. He's got these dreams and that, you know, he's going to be a ruler over them. And they're like, you're the youngest, you're the runt of the litter. You're not going to rule over us. And so instead of killing him, they sell him off into slavery Um, with this little band of people called the Midianites. Those will come back up later. And then he goes to Egypt, and he has a pretty terrible life there. For 28 years, he's got a pretty terrible life until God turns it around for him. God uses him to work with the king, and all of a sudden he saves this country in a real practical way from famine. So he saves the country from famine. And now people from all over the world are coming to Egypt because it's like Egypt has food. One of the things that we don't think about in the ancient world is their lack of meteorologists, right? We don't think about that. You don't have somebody like on YouTube going, well, you know, we're going to have a cooling trend for the next uh, however many years. It's going to affect crops here. It's going to affect crops there. It's like all of a sudden it was hot and crops didn't grow and there was no rain. And they were like, what's happening? We didn't know, you know? And so Joseph is able to help Egypt prepare for the coming famine. Countries from all over come. His 12 brothers come back to him. And um, essentially what happens, and I should, I should stick to, to the scripture here. Let me go back to Genesis 50, 24 through 25. Um, here's what happens. His brothers come back to him and his brothers are like, oh, no, this, once they find out it's Joseph, they're like, this guy's going to kill us. They've been separated 28 years. And Genesis 50, 24 through 25 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. Oh, I'm sorry. See, I, already, I got way ahead of myself, right? I got way ahead of myself. Um, here's what happens before we get to that point. Joseph tells them, like, you're stuck in this land, but one day God's going to save you from it. One day God's going to save you from it. Genesis 24 through 25, 50, 24 through 25. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land in the land promised, the land promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath. God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So for 400 years, the people of, of Israel would live in Egypt, and they would go from a good relationship with Israel to slowly becoming enslaved by Israel. It would become a difficult relationship. See, when ethnic groups and societies are kept separate from each other, then all kinds of suspicion is fostered, especially this is true in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you, you had a country of Egypt, and it was full of, guess what, Egyptians. So when all these Hebrew people were coming over, it was like, what are they going to do? Are they going to take us over? What are they going to do? They're becoming numerous. It creates an environment where tensions build, and eventually they clash. Exodus 1 I'm going to kind of go back and forth between Exodus and Genesis here for a minute. Exodus 1, 8 through 14 says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. If war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, and they'll fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked with them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, in bricks and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And in harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly." The point is that Israel's having a hard time in Egypt. A new king comes to power and he's threatened now by this group of people who are now in his country that are growing larger than him. By the way, this is, this is like the theory of world powers and international relations. I know maybe I'm the only person who is an international relations major here in college, but when growing powers happen, so like if the United States is here and there's another country that's growing like this, I don't know, let's call them China, um, growing like this and their powers come together, then they're destined to clash when their level of power is the same. It's happened throughout world history time and time again. It's not about U.S. and China. It's about any country you could just take this and look at what level of economic power, social power, world power. Whenever their power comes together and they're matching, then they collide. And this is what was happening in, in Egypt. The power of the Hebrew people was growing more and more and more because there was more of them. And it didn't matter how hard they oppressed the Hebrews. They just kept on being fruitful and multiplying. One of the things that the author of Exodus wants us to know here, by the way, the traditional author is Moses, and I hope this doesn't mess with any of you, but we know there's a lot of scribes that have worked on this as well. And so I'm going to say the author of Exodus and use it to attribute to Moses, but also take into account the scribes that have worked on the book of Exodus before. And 
we can have long conversations about what that all means, but just know that we believe that the Bible is, is, is inerrant in its original form. So we could talk about all the scribes and stuff later. That's kind of a can of worms. I probably shouldn't have brought it up. That's okay. Let's keep moving forward. So what's happening here is that the author of Exodus wants you to see is that this is like a new Genesis moment here. In Adam, in Adam and Eve's time, the command was be fruitful and multiply. And there was this serpent that tried to usurp God's promise. And now you've got this king, this pharaoh, who's sort of usurping the Israelites, God's promise, but it doesn't matter. They're still being fruitful and multiplying. All the way through the first five books of the Bible, especially, you see the words of Genesis 1 through 3 sprinkled all through the text to let you know this is just another creation moment. This is just another moment where God's going to do something new. And so you see that again right here. So the concern by the king is that surely, surely if these Hebrew people want power, then they're going to ally, um, ally themselves with the Hittites, with the Midianites, with all these other groups that are kind of surrounding them in the desert. And maybe they'll come in and the two powers combined could come in and take over Egypt because Egypt's a fertile land. There's all kinds of great stuff there. They could come and take it over. But God allowed them to just continue to grow even in the midst of harsh labor and enslavement. This preaches one of the great themes of Genesis, actually. And it shows us that the theme of Genesis and really the character of God is continuing on. That God's character has not changed. That is continuing on. And it's found in Genesis 50, 20. This is back to the story of Joseph now. Joseph with his brothers. His brothers are scared his brothers are like, oh no, Joseph's now in charge of Egypt and he's, he's found us out. He could kill us now. And here's what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In Hebrew, it says, what you intended for Ra, God made Tov. Ra is evil, Tov is good. And these are two words, again, that are found in the garden in Genesis 1 through 3 that are just found there. They're sprinkled and littered all through the, the first five books of the Bible. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. This is the theme of all of Genesis. In fact, you see it all the time. What human beings do ends up being evil, but what God does is he takes it and he intends it for good. He doesn't bless their evil, he redeems it and makes it good. He makes it good in their own lives. Do they still have to suffer the consequences? Yes, absolutely. Is life still hard for them? Yes, absolutely. But he makes it good. All that is raw becomes tov when it's filtered through the Lord. It's a great reminder that God absorbs the evil of our life and returns it for Tov. This is what we're happening. This is what we see happening in Egypt through the Israelites are now slaves. They're working twice as hard, but somehow God is taking the evil that's inflicted on them through making them work hard, through making them, you know, make extra brick and, and make all these store cities and things like that. And he's being, making them be fruitful and multiply. He's continuing on the promise, not just of Genesis, where the command to be fruitful and multiply, but the promise to Abraham, too. 
the promise to Abraham that your people are going to be fruitful and they're going to grow and they're going to be multiplied. God is continuing this promise. He's continuing it with them. And now they're seeing that. So your first fill-in, it says, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. This is the theme that's carried straight from Genesis over to Exodus. And we see that no matter how hard Pharaoh pushes on the Israelites, God reverses it. Because in God, there's this great reversal that happens. Does that mean you're not going to go through hard times? No. I was a little afraid by saying this point today. You, th- you would think, oh man, I'm going through a tough financial thing. Oh man, I'm going through a tough relational thing. Oh man, I'm going through just a tough work thing or a tough thing with my kids. And, and God's going to make that all go away. No. He shapes you through it. He shapes you and molds you through it for his good and for his purposes. It doesn't mean you're exempt from it. It doesn't mean you're exempt from suffering. It's a tough message to preach, but you're still going to have to suffer. You're still going to have to walk through it, but the difference is is that you're going to walk through it with the Lord. And he's he's going to change you in such a way that it's used for his good. That's the point And that's the point with this happening in Genesis and this being carried straight over into Exodus with Moses now. A lot of introduction. I mean, isn't that the story of the cross, by the way? Isn't it the story of the cross that Jesus takes the evil of this world, he absorbs it into his body, and he returns to us forgiveness and freedom from sin? He still had to go through the evil He still had to get the evil heaped onto him. He still had to go through it all to return to us forgiveness. He still had to go through all of that. That's the story of the cross. He walked through this unimaginable evil so that we can experience unimaginable freedom. So what man intends for evil, God intends for good. Keep reading with me. We're in Exodus again. Um, You guys, I'm doing all of chapter one and all of chapter two today. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to go quick. All right. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) Yeah, it's Hebrew women. So God, I mean, you're laughing because you know, like, it's just a lie to Pharaoh, right? So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. You get that? Even more numerous. Because the midwives fear God, and he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Even here you see that theme, that what, is, what man intends for evil, God flips it around and makes it good. Makes it even more numerous. So the almighty and all-powerful Pharaoh, plan, their plans are foiled by a couple of Hebrew midwives. It's supposed to be like this comedy in the story. 
And the other important thing, too, is you notice in, in Exodus, you're going to notice this, it'll never tell you the name of the Pharaoh. It's really annoying for people who like chronology and who like to look at timelines. <laughs> it would be much more, it'd be much nicer and cleaner for us who like timelines to know Pharaoh's name. But it's almost as if God is saying, this is the way every beastly world leader leads. This is just the tactics of leaders who want to stay into power. And Pharaoh here becomes this archetype. So, you know, just hold on to this idea of Pharaoh. It, later on, you just get another Pharaoh. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And then later on after that, you, you get another Pharaoh. You get Cyrus and you get, uh, you know, Darius and you get all these other leaders in the, in the Old Testament. And then later you get Caesar. And then later, I mean, you go on and on and on. This is just the way kings have to act in order to hold on to their power. And I think that's the point of not naming the Pharaoh here. To let you know that one Pharaoh is just like any other Pharaoh. It's how they're all going to act. But giving names to people in the Bible is, is this act of dignity. And so it's also not giving Pharaoh dignity, but these two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, whose names, by the way, mean beautiful and sparkle. First sparkle. If your name is sparkle, it's like it's in the Bible, right? And the point is that they are radiant before God because they are protecting life. So these two are literally told to commit infanticide, unfortunately all too common in the ancient world. And they decide to lie to the king instead and help these people have children. It's this difference between God's people, God's kingdom, his ways, and Pharaoh's ways. And as a people, we're always going to be, the Pharaoh is just still alive today. Pharaoh is always going to want to press us into his mold. Whatever it's our society, our cultural values, whatever that is, they want to press us into the mold of Pharaoh. But these two women went against the mold of Pharaoh. We're not going to live by Pharaoh's standards. We're not going to live by Pharaoh's culture. We're not going to live by Pharaoh's values. We're, we fear God, so we're going to live by God's values. And we're going to stand boldly in front of Pharaoh and tell him. We need a people like that. We need a people like Shipra and Pua, sparkle and beautiful. We need a people who are going to stand up to the cultural values of today and say, we fear the Lord. Uh, sorry, it's just the way it is. We fear the Lord. We're not going to go, we're not going to be shaped into your mold. And now we get into the birth narrative of Moses. Chapter two. I can't, that's the fastest I've ever gone through a chapter of the Bible. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, he hid him for three, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child into it and put it on among the reeds and along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. 
Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went to get the baby's mother. So this starts with telling us that Moses was born from Levite parents. This doesn't mean a lot right now in the narrative, but later on in the story, you're going to see that the entire priesthood of Israel, those who intercede for the people and God, who literally help the people connect with God, are only going to be from the tribe of Levi. They're called Levites. And so it's important that you get this birth narrative and you get Moses' genealogy here, that he's from the tribe of Levites, because this is what Moses is going to do with his entire life. He's going to intercede on behalf of the people to God. He's a priest. And they're just letting you know the, the origin story of the Levites and why they're so important. God would speak for God and he would speak to God for the people. This is what Moses does. That's why he's so important. So then, because of the edict to kill the little boys, Moses' mom, and I think the, the text here wants you to see the little wink-wink that's happening, right? Like, did, the daughter of Pharaoh just happened to be bathing, and she just happened to be there with this little basket and pushed, pushed the baby over, and, and the woman just happened. No, something happened there. They know the character. She knew the character of Mo, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. She knew that her child would be taken care of. But the interesting thing is that it says that she got this basket and covered it with tar and with pitch. So that basket in Hebrew is called an ark. There's only two places in the Bible where an ark, that word is used. Does anybody know the other one? <laughs> Noah's ark, right? What was the story of Noah's ark? It was God saving the world and creating, getting rid of the evil and making a new creation. This is, again, the authors giving you this big wink and nod back to Genesis saying like, hey, what's going to happen with Moses' life? He's going to bring about this new creation. He's going to bring about this new people that are going to bless the earth, that are going to bless the whole world. It's kind of a small ark. It didn't have room for all the animals in this one. You know, but covered it with tar and pitch just like Noah's ark and sent it down the way. And the woman uh, 